There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. This episode focuses on the twists and turns of a young actress's life. With a series of traumatic events in her past, Jessica Impiazzi manages to find the silver linings in each and push herself forward. Known for her appearances on X on the Beach and Celebrity Big Brother, she has also been in the spotlight for her modelling work, namely Page 3. Her marriage to a famous rugby player and now her true passion, acting. Please be warned that this episode does have references to domestic violence and suicide, which some listeners might find triggering. Jess, it's great to have you on my my podcast. I've been looking forward to this. And, And the reason I've been looking forward to this is because I know you're not just a reality star. Um, but I've never watched any reality programs. It's just not the genre that I watch on on television. I've heard lots of things. I know lots of people who do watch it and tell me I should watch it. And that's not necessarily where I want to start, but I just want to flag that up so people know who I've got on on my show and one of the areas that I want to discuss. I want to start with you as a teenager or before you were a teenager, sort of building up to a teenager. So people get a picture of who Jess was growing up where you grew up so let me ask you um who was Jess as a sort of 10 year old to 18 year old what would you do and what would you aspiring to become I think I practically <laughs> came out the womb wanting to dance act and sing I I just remember my mum used to go to the pub next door to the house and they had a stage in there and all I would do was gather all the other children and make them dance act do a show and then I would go and get the the local drinkers to come in and pay a pound to watch our show. So I, was, I think there's a bit of an entrepreneurship in there somewhere as well. But it, it was the only thing I ever really had a passion for. And I truly believe that we all have that in us. Like everyone has a passion that they that they kind of born to it. as a child, you're attracted to something. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's just automatically inbuilt in you. And um, so that's all I ever wanted to do. But unfortunately, I didn't have the easiest of childhood. So there was a lot of domestic violence in the home. And that almost derailed me. And it did derail me. But not until later on in life, I suppose, at this age, you know, at the 10, 11 years old, I was still trying to find ways that I could make sure that I was going to be on stage or behind a camera in some way. And I think... I just spent my time at school. I was at a normal school and I just thought, okay, well, the way I can now progress is by going to theatre school. So I remember it was the old dial up internet where you plug it in the wall and I would, um, I would find all the theatre schools and I, I came across Italia Conti, which is where I ended up going. And I was, I didn't tell my mum I'd done this. I just applied online and these letters came through the post and auditions came through and 
I started going to the Saturday school, um, which my, my mother had to agree to in the end because she's getting all these letters like, where are these coming from? <laughs> and, and off I went. And then I wanted it more. I wanted more and more of this feeling of when I was dancing and, and acting. And I applied again behind my mum's back at about 13 for the full-time school in London. And the first time I didn't actually get in. And I remember I was absolutely devastated, like it felt like my world had just collapsed and I was 13 and I, I didn't understand it. So I just had this knowing that I was going to that school. I, di- I didn't care that they'd said no, I was going to the school. So I phoned up the, the reception of Italia Conti and I said, listen, I know you don't accept people when they go into year 10, um, which is when you start your GCSEs. So how about I go down a year at school and you let me re-audition? <laughs> and well, they were like, okay, well, that's fine, but we would need permission from your mother and all this, um, which I convinced her to. And, you know, I guess as a parent, she didn't see any harm in another year of training and learning. And they, I re-auditioned six months later and I got in for the following year. So I dropped down a year at school and, and I went. I had the best time of my life there. It was a struggle to fit in at first because I was quite far behind everyone else in terms of dancing and acting. I hadn't been doing it professionally for, you know, training professionally for a while. But I caught up and I had this determination and I knew that that was that was going to be my life. I, I think when you can see something, I think I learned that at a young age that when you know something is meant for you and you truly, truly believe it, I don't think anyone can ever stop you. I mean, being told, no, you're not getting into a school and then as a child phoning up to to, to compromise how I could get in, I think you, you kind of have something inside of you. It kind of went wrong for me. And like with the reality TV, I will say, I don't regret anything. I never regret because regret leads to your future being disturbed. So you have to accept things. And I think the reason why reality TV came along was I'd got into the, now I'd gone into the college of Italia Conti. And in that first year, I'd never healed from the domestic violence as a kid. I never really spoke about it. I kind of was told to internalize it. And I don't think I ever healed from that. In the first year of Italia Conti student course, my nephew died of meningitis at 13 months old, and I was helping look after him that day. And at 17, as a as a girl anyway, at 17, it's not the easiest of times. And I basically watched my 13-month-old nephew die of meningitis and septicemia all within five hours of me having him in the morning, helping my brother and my sister move. And then all of a sudden the baby's passed away at 13 months and I, I didn't comprehend it. And I, I went back to school after the summer trying to just get back on with life and I didn't speak to anyone. And again, I, I couldn't cope. Fast forward another six months, my mum went completely blind. And again, I mean, 17, 18, I just, I couldn't cope anymore. And I had to leave, leave the theatre school just for my own mental health. And then I kind of felt a bit lost. I, I couldn't get an agent because I hadn't completed school and it was just like this vicious circle. And I just everything that had happened, I'd never healed from. And I was never going to be able to get anywhere with that in, in the state of mind I was. And I was becoming my mum's carer. And I felt like I kind of lost everything. And with all the little traumas that had gone on, I didn't see how life was ever going to get beyond that because I'd only ever seen when something good comes along, something bad follows. And and that was my mindset. My mindset was very much that everything was was bad. And, you know, don't look forward to things because something bad will come along. And I got stuck in that. And that's when reality TV came along. And I think an unhealed person to that extent going on reality TV is never going to be a good thing. I, I was, wasn't was aware I had post-traumatic stress disorder from all the things growing up. And I didn't actually know that I had that until I was 28 years old. And the realization of that was where I learned to heal. And I needed to heal myself to give myself another chance at life, the life that I wanted, the, the passion that I felt as a child. I needed that back. But you can't do that if you're not, not healed or, or, or if you're stuck in trauma. Let me, let me take you back to, I mean, I mean, you talk quite candidly about these various um, traumas. Is that the right way of describing them? Yeah. I mean, growing up in a household where there is domestic violence, and I suspect there are millions of children who, who are experiencing that right now, have experienced it and gone on to become quite resilient in, in their character. What, what form of domestic violence are we talking about? Were you the subject of this domestic violence? No, it was toward my mother and it was quite intense. I mean, we'd, had, we'd have units of police cars around 
maybe three or four nights a week. I almost got, you know, the, the school noticed my, my attendance was bad and social services became involved at one point. And I then developed this need to protect and heal everyone because I was seeing what's happening to my mum. I would try and rip people off of her and like stop them from hurting her. And I would, I would, I I remember, I think I must've been about 10 to about 13, maybe a bit younger. I would listen outside the door until the whole household was asleep. And that could be till 3am because I was waiting for something to happen. I was always just waiting on red alert, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. I was on red alert 24 seven. So my education suffered because I couldn't focus. I was always just waiting for something to, to come and, and I've had to was was it your point. dad who who was physically harming your mother? No, it was it wasn't my real dad. He's never lived with us actually. I've never it's never been that close of a relationship. But it was another family member, an older family member. Yeah, it just it was just so intense. And when you're when you're young and you're you're watching the people that are supposed to love each other and look after each other attack and hurt one another. I suppose it can really warp your sense of um, what love is supposed to be for the future. Was it fueled by alcohol, drugs, or is it just a domestic situation? Not that that's an excuse, but I just wonder if it was driven by anything other than the the, the personality of an individual. Yeah, no, I, I think it was a mix of both. I know at the time the person was, he had lost his friend and he'd had an accident in a, in a motorbike. And I think that sent this person off to drugs and alcohol. And then my mum to deal with it would go to the pub next door. And therefore, once I'm at home alone, waiting for them both to come home, and without fail, it would be World War Three again, just like blow up. And my mum's great now. She's fantastic. I think to try and cope with that as well, she was a young parent at the time. She didn't know how to cope with what was going on. So it's uh, it was just one of those things where two people would come together and and it would just blow up and it was always you know when it was bad it was nine times out of ten alcohol induced and did it become um, I mean they describe these things sometimes as becoming normalized where you as a young girl and I don't know whether you have any brothers and sisters but when you did go off to school or go out to play you you think that everybody else is suffering the same thing in their house because if it's something you've grown up with and you you imagine, I suppose, it's normalised. It's something that happens in every household. Or was you as a young child aware that this was something that was happening in your household and maybe one or two others of your friends if you spoke to them or you just kind of bottled it up and kept it in yourself? And you mentioned you mentioned that, you know, two or three times a week, um, you know, the police would be called out. I'd like to think that things have changed now and the police with new bills and legislation and all that sort of stuff step in a lot earlier and protect children like you, women like your mother, or men who are suffering the same thing. Why and how could it happen so often without the authorities or somebody stepping in? Or was this because it wasn't being reported in the way that it, or, or allegations were taken away? Because that's what happens in domestic situations. How do you remember it as a kid? Well, you know, things actually had changed after all this stopped in my life. I remember now the rules have changed. So the, sorry, the laws changed. So now if it's reported, the police press charges, whereas my mum would always withdraw the charges because she didn't want, you know, it was a family member, a close family member. And she didn't want the, that to, you know, is it a hard one for a parent? Do you, do you press charges against this person that you love or do you not? And she just kept pulling the charges back. But now the law has changed. And I think for the better, because that doesn't, you know, you're not, putting yourself in that, that position, the, the law take it into their hands and they press the charges. So if this had happened to me, you know, if I was a younger person and, and it was happening now, they would have no choice but the charges would have been pressed. And hopefully now that would have kind of stopped the thing for going on for so long. Um, regards to having it normalised, I suppose I did feel like that this was a normal, normal household for a long time. It wasn't until I started Italia Conti and I would go to my friends' houses and I would see how their parents were with them, how their siblings were with them, that I would come home and I would sob. I'd go into my bedroom and and I couldn't understand why I didn't have that. I I didn't understand why I didn't have a dad like she did. I didn't understand why I didn't have a a brother that didn't hurt anyone. I, I, I couldn't understand why this was happening at my house. And I was always told, you know, if, if you tell anyone, you could get taken away. So I just kept it in and, and it would come out in other forms. So like at school, for instance, if someone said a, 
really mild comment that wouldn't really affect any other kid, they'd laugh it off, I would be in absolute tears. And I remember one of my French teachers once, this was before Italia Conti, she pulled me out of the room and said, why are you so upset? And I told her, and I just, I was in absolute pieces. And I asked her not to say anything because I didn't want it to, you know, get, I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want anyone else to get in trouble from my home. So I was really stuck in this position of, I need help, but I don't want to hurt anyone in my house, but I was getting hurt in my house. So it, it was a really tough thing to get my head around because then I, I felt guilty if I felt sad that this was happening at home. And guilt is really not a nice thing to carry around. And I carried that around for a long time without really understanding it. And what would you say to young girls and boys who, who you know, they're fans of yours um, and they're going through this experience themselves, you know, in hindsight now as a, a, a young woman, what, what would you say to those kids who may be doing exactly what you was doing, Jess, when you were walking outside that classroom crying and telling the teacher not to tell anyone? Would you would you advise? I mean, it's a very difficult one, isn't it? Because it, it's a cutting edge. They're probably in exactly the same position that you was, um, not wanting to get their parents in trouble, not wanting to be taken away if that was part of the threat. But what do you think would be a, a sound piece of advice to some young kid maybe listening to this or, or knows of you now? I think they need to know that that's not normal at home. And I, and I think once you realise that and, you know, that you shouldn't be having to see that. You shouldn't be scared all the time. So people do things to try and protect one another. And But if what they're doing is wrong, you need to talk. You need to you need to get help. And in, in, in fact, most of the time, I look back now, and if I had have spoken up and really said, actually, we need help in our family, things may have healed up a bit quicker than they did. So I don't, you're not doing anything wrong. If you're scared and you're, you're, you're terrified and these things are happening at home, you have to talk up because that's where the, that's where you can get it fixed. That's, that's sound advice. You know, that was one challenge that you, you faced. You talked about your, your nephew who you were looking after at one point dying from meningitis tell me a little bit about that so that was a crazy day actually it was may 18th of may 2006 and he'd he'd turned one years old on april the 4th so he's 13 months old and i that exact day i got my letter from italia conti giving me the full scholarship to the um, college so i woke up ecstatic I'd, i'd worked my absolute butt off for it and i and i got it and it was it was just the best day ever and then my brother and his girlfriend at the time were moving house um, with their with their new with, with Charlie. His name was, and he wasn't very well, so he had a doctor's appointment booked for midday. And whilst they were moving, I kind of was just with him in their bedroom, um, looking after him. And he he just wasn't right. So midday came, he we went down to the doctor surgery, and there was an hour late to see us. And when I look back at it, it's like a movie. You can't even, it went slow motion. We went into the surgery and as we got into the doctor, his eyes rolled back and she just put him on oxygen straight away. We got rushed to the Royal Surrey in Guildford. They were doing lumbar punches to check what it was because his his body had come up in a rash. And fast forward five hours, all of that kind of is a blur now, but fast forward five hours and... They said, there's nothing we can do. Originally, they were going to try and take him up to the Children's Hospital in London because they had better stuff for this situation. And he didn't even make it there. He just passed away. And I I remember I was at the hospital. My brother and his girlfriend just kind of were in a trance and they left. And I stayed there with the other auntie. And I was, I mean, I just sat by, I was 17. I sat by his Moses basket where they put him and his body. And I just had my finger in his hand and I remember a piece of liquid came out of his mouth and I I was calling to the nurse no no he's alive look this has happened but it it wasn't that it was just how the body reacts once you've passed you know things can come out your body and and I stayed there and waited my mum was away in Turkey with my my now stepdad who's an amazing man I I couldn't comprehend it and I, I don't think I cried I just sat there absolutely shaking like my body was shaking I I didn't cry I don't think I cried for a long time because it was more shock for a while I mean at the time and a long long time after I couldn't comprehend it but now I've done a lot of work on myself I kind of understand that there's no silver lining in losing a child like that in such traumatic circumstances but what I learned from that was how short life can be and how it can be taken at any moment so You've got to live in the moment. 
And I think that's the only thing I can take from that is a positive. That that's so powerful, actually, and that, and that, as you say, is is a lesson learned. But at the time, how do you deal with something like that and the domestic violence as a seventeen-year-old? Two very traumatic experiences. How does a seventeen-year-old cope in those circumstances? It's it's telling that you said you didn't cry, and I suspect you cried so much in your life from witnessing the violence in your home that maybe your tears had dried up a little bit. I know you say part of it was was the shock and you hadn't come to terms with what had happened. Um, but there can't be many 17-year-olds who find themselves in the same situation that you did, Jess. So how how did you deal with that mentally for the next few years as you was aspiring to do what it is that you wanted to do in, in your career? To be honest, I didn't deal with it very well. I would drink I would go drinking as soon as I hit 18 I was probably out three nights a week I quit my theatre school the most important thing for me in my life was to have a boyfriend because I thought then someone's there's a safety net with someone that can take care of me and you know if there's something bad they'll look after me and I kind of lost any spark that I had for my career I left theatre school um, maybe a year after Charlie died and I just really started coming into myself at this point. Just before that happened, I was getting all the solos in the shows and I was really starting to do well. Um, And I remember I tried to go back for a bit and one of my favourite dance teachers pulled me aside and she said, something's gone, the fire's gone behind your eyes. And I knew knew it had and I was fighting for it, but I couldn't fight anymore. I I, I didn't have that fight and I, I completely lost myself and went off the rails. That's all I can explain. Luckily, I never fell into drugs or anything that extreme, but alcohol was my vice. And I would, I would get sad. I would go out drinking with my friends. I would wake up feeling horrible because the drink would make it 10 times worse than it was the day before. So I'd dress up and I'd go out again. And then I'd find myself going and going into relationships that were either copying what I'd grown up watching. So either quite toxic or violent so I'd always have that feeling of being scared because I was used to it I understood that so it was like an uncomfortable comfort zone or that was it I'll just drink and try and find another boyfriend that clearly was a replica of the person that was what I grew up with god I've heard that story so many times and 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 I don't know why but it didn't end there did it I mean you've had those two traumas and then as a teenager I read that your mum got quite ill I think she lost her sight. Am I right? Tell, tell yeah. me about what happened there. And I'm, it's interesting because it, it takes us to where we're going to go to. But this resilience that is building in you through these experiences are quite telling and are worth reflecting on when we talk about what, what happens as you get older, which is, you know, the reality stuff um, that I know nothing about, but I'm interested in. And I want to ask you a few questions about. So I say, you know, Charlie, the domestic violence, and then you had to deal with one more. I say one more. I'm sure there are many others. And in between all this, Jess, I'm sure there were some good times, you know, whether it was with some of them boyfriends who were toxic. I'm sure there was some good time because there has to be. You can't be a teenager without laughing and giggling. And I hope you will share one or two of those. Tell me about what happened to your mum and how you dealt with that. Yeah. So mum has a condition. Um, it's a genetic disorder called uvl effusion syndrome and now it's a gene that is so so rare so she's always been under moorfields eye hospital from a child but they it was so rare they didn't really know what was going to be the outcome of of this gene all they knew was that her she was slightly partially sighted but she could do everything except drive and walking home in the dark was probably quite a difficult thing to do because it would her vision would impair at that time she hit menopause and a fluid built up at the back of the eye, which is, again, they didn't know this would happen because it was so rare. And it detached the retinas. The The gene itself makes the back of the eyes dwarfed. So our normal eyesight, what we would have, hers is very, very tiny at the back. Um, so dwarf back of the eyes. And it just it just took her eyesight away. And it happened, the first eye happened within two weeks and the second one within 18 months and she was completely blind. At what age? I was 17, 18, and my mum was 46. Do you have the, the the genetics that can cause this threat, if it's a threat to, to you? Yeah. So I have, I'm a carrier of the gene, but both parents have to have the gene. So the chances of my, my, my granddad was Italian, my nan was English-Irish, and 
this gene is actually found in the Amish. So they had no idea how it's got to both of them when there was only at the time when she was, they found out what it was. But I think they only had on record five people in the world with it. So it was so, so strange that my Italian granddad and my English Irish nan both happened to have the gene. It's just as unlucky. And my uncle wasn't affected at all. So it might just be that it's for females. They're still doing research on it. But I carry the gene. But because my real birth father doesn't have the gene, I will be fine as far as they know. But I've got no eye problems. Just the, just the usual growing older and having to wear glasses in the car now. <laughs> I've got mine on and, and it, they do become permanent at, at some point. How did that, was you living with your mum at the time and how did that affect your relationship? Because I suspect, although you were out on the town having fun, trying to drown some of your sorrows and past, but also growing up because there is that side of it as well. You were probably coming into your own, rightly so. How did the dynamics change in the relationship with your mum? Because um, I don't know if she was with your stepfather at the time, so there was someone looking after her. I don't know how many other siblings. You mentioned your brother. But, I mean, did the dynamics between you and your mother change when she lost her sight? Yeah, big time. I, in a way, I'd been so used to, like, wanting to protect her all the time that this was just another level of that. I was still trying to go to Italia Conti, so I'd, I'd get the train. I'd move back home to mum's and I was getting the train into London every day from Hazelmere. And I remember one day I came home from school and she hadn't left the sofa where she was. And, she'd, and I said, mum, have you been here all day? And she said, yeah, I'm too scared to move. And that's when I thought, you know, I need to leave school. I, I have to because my stepdad was working to try and keep them afloat because obviously they'd her income had gone because she worked for the Chernobyl Children's Lifeline, um, helping a charity for the kids in Chernobyl. And so she had to quit her job. So I kind of felt like I need to help her here because how is she, how can she just sit here all day long and she was too scared to go and get a cup of tea in case she burnt herself or fell down the stairs or she just stayed in the same place. And it was it was at that point I was struggling at school because of all the other things and this was going on at home. I didn't see how I was going to feel that spark at that point, knowing mum's at home. I've already lost my spark. I, it was just too much of a struggle. So I quit and I found some groups online um, around the area where they taught Braille, where they helped you get gadgets for new things to help blind people. For instance, a cup of tea thing you'd put, put on the side of your mug and it will make a noise when the hot water's topping up so that you know when to stop pouring and we'd go and do these classes maybe two or three times a week. And we ended up making loads of friends of like old ladies around the area that had also had sight problems. And I remember that I had a little Ford KA and I would drive around picking up all the old ladies and we'd go off to our classes. And, I, you know, these tragic things that happen, there's so much beauty in them if you can just find it. And I, I learned so much from these older ladies, like about your passion. Like one of the ladies, she she loved making jam and she figured out her, her eyesight was bad, but she wasn't completely blind, but she found ways to adapt to make sure she could make the best jam you've ever had. And watching her do that with her disability, it gave me a, a sense of hope that once I've cleared whatever it is in my mind, there was hope at the end and she restored that in me. So I learned a lot through those older ladies and and through helping mum and, and going to these classes. And again, there's a silver lining. <laughs> how is your relationship with your mum now? Because I suspect for the next few years, and I don't know how long, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sure it's still going on now, but how is your relationship with your mum now? Does, has, has she regained any of her sight? Are you still having to do and work and help your mum? No, actually, she's she's doing amazing. So she hadn't, her sight would never really come back I think the only thing that would be able to do that is um stem cell therapy but they've not got the funding in in the science for that but she has a guide dog I work really closely with the the charity as one of the ambassadors because to me they I watched them the guide dog change her world she became more independent and I think when I started healing and doing work on myself it was also rubbing off on my mum so then I'd you know I say beat the fear let's go for a walk with the guide dog I'll be 10 steps behind you or and that's how we kind of started it till she can now just take a guide dog and off she goes wherever she fancies she'll go on an airplane on her own with her guide dog you know to see her friends and then come back and she also went to the Royal National College for the Blind which when she did that our relationship became very ab fab um I don't know if you've seen absolutely fabulous (laughs) I was Safi and mum was was one of the others and it became very ab fab and now our relationship is more it's kind of comical really um 
we have play fights and my stepdad walks in he's like oh Christ not again like (laughs) he just finds it really funny but I suppose we've done she cared for me as a kid I'd then cared for her when all that stuff was going on at home and then when she lost her sight I became like the caregiver It, it it was a weird dynamic for a parent child relationship because it shouldn't be to and throw until we're a lot older but it was happening at such a young age that we were caring for different parts of each other um so now we have a really good relationship we laugh a lot and we, we always you know there's stories when she first lost her sight when you know people don't know how to behave a lot of the time around someone with a disability and we some things are just some of the stories are so funny I mean one time we went to the doctors and I had a pink Timberland boot and she had a brown one and I didn't notice she'd put one of each on and when we got to the doctor's surgery I was like oh my god mum and I was so concerned because I didn't want to hurt her feelings but I wanted to tell her and then she's like what is it what is it it's like you've got odd shoes on and we we laughed hysterically and um it, she was like I'll start a new trend and you know she she started to not not be so subconscious about it because we could laugh together and we'd gone through this in a way together that it, it kind of created such a bond great testimony so tell me, how, how did Jess get involved in, in reality TV? And before you tell me how you get in, well, well, tell me how you got involved in reality TV. How did that come about? And, and what reality TV have you been involved in? Yeah, so this was just pure accident. I, I was, with all this going on with mum, I was still missing something in my life. And I knew what it was. It was my acting, my theatre school stuff. I was I was really getting depressed because I could not find what I wanted to do. And I went. I was doing jobs at you know Pizza Express, or I would go to the gym and work in the office. And I was still missing something. I, I just knew there was something out there, and I, I tasted this on this scholarship in London, and then I got it taken away. And it was just so hard to to comprehend that that could have been my life, and now it's not. And I didn't. I wasn't ready to give up. So I got into modelling, and again, again, that was probably a, a regret. I don't, as I said, regrets. I I don't like that I had to do that but it made me grow into the person I am so I can't sit and you know be sad about it what what kind of modeling are we talking about I was doing page three for a time that's um, like the sun newspaper sort of stuff yeah yeah okay yeah. so for anybody who doesn't know that's kind of bikini clad pictures breast out stuff yeah, yeah. okay um, so that's work that was paid work exactly and it was giving me I was using that to fill a void and I was thinking okay well I didn't I didn't get where I wanted to but at least I can show people I'm doing something and it was always that trying to prove to other people rather than myself and that's where you go wrong I think I I was trying to prove to others and and through that modeling is where MTV got in touch and I did X on the beach and now at this point I'm a very depressed unhealed 22 year old lost in life completely off the rails when it comes just going out all the time and that that's the the mold I kind of got myself into and so I just thought you know what it's behind a camera you might as well go you're not happy doing this modeling so let's try this and these shows are I've spoken about this before because you know you're putting 18 to 25 year olds on the telly encouraging them to get as drunk as you can be as crazy as you can to make the show ratings get higher no producer is going to want to have a a sensible well-heeled life that's been easy 18 to 25 year old because they're not going to behave in the ways that is going to make good tv you need someone that you know is going to tick when you you do certain things or you know their behavior is going to give you ratings and and headlines and I and I feel like it's it's a dangerous road we're in now because when you're 20 what I was 22 when you're 22 and you're you're doing these shows, you're thinking, oh, this is validation now for me that I've done something. I'm, I'm validating myself through people talking about me. I'm validating myself through having headlines about myself. But all I was doing was destroying my soul even more and moving further and further away from what my heart really wanted. But I, was, couldn't, I couldn't work it out. That, that's really interesting, actually, because I... You know, as somebody who doesn't watch these shows but often see some of the headlines or the pictures or the images and, and, and they're saturated in all forms of media and they're followed by millions. It's interesting you say that because I'm I'm of the view that people aspire to that, that they aspire to want to be on these shows, as you said, because it validates your your success because you know for people to be on television programs you can to some extent say that success because they have been picked out of a bunch of of zillions but I've also seen lots of the criticism that you've you've had for these kinds of shows so X on the beach is what just briefly tell me what kind of program that is 
and, and what your role would be in a program like that? Yeah, so they they got five or six singles, single people, um, put them on an island, and then the ex boyfriend or girlfriend. They don't tell you the show's ex on the beach at the start. So then you, you're suddenly on a beach and your ex-boyfriend turns up or your ex-girlfriend turns up. Oh, so they and keep then, it quiet. They don't kind of – I mean, people know what they, it is. They, I don't think they can do that now because obviously the show was too well known after yeah, that. But the sure. beginning two or three series, I think they, they kept it from everyone. They kept it from me, yeah. So you turned um, up on this beach and all of a sudden your ex-boyfriend comes to the beach. Yeah, that's, that's how it works <laughs> because they know it's going to – do drama and and obviously it's a good concept to creating drama but like I said when you're when you're doing things for these reactions you need someone that's going to lose their head a bit and it's people that you know like I said people that have had a nice upbringing that are quite calm and got their self-centered aren't going to give you the reactions they want so they're looking for people that they know are going to tick and that that's what worries me I mean kids going into these shows now some of them cool yeah you can set up your whole life on them like I think rules have changed now like Love Island especially they've they stop airing any sex scenes. And I completely agree that that should be the case because these things don't go away. They're always going to be online. We, we've, this new age is everything's online. It doesn't disappear. It's there forever. So I think it's a good thing that they've, they've put the rules up when it comes to these sex scenes because, you, you know, me at 22 and now me at 32 is a completely different human being. So I, I find it quite frightening that these things, I mean, look at the Geordie Shore lot. I know that they will, I mean, Holly has come out recently and said, you know, how I was treated was not right. The level of care should be upped because, you know, with, with things online now, you, you've got, you're opening up yourself to trolling, to, to all these awful things and which create mental health problems. And then when you're told over and over again how the world doesn't like you over the internet, you start to believe that yourself. What was your experience like? So X on the Beach and what other reality shows have you been in, just for the record? And then I just did, actually fast forward to 2018, I did Celebrity Big Brother Year of the Woman. And I was really glad I did that show because by this time I'd been, I was I was actually, I was married before I did this show. I just needed people to see the real me rather than this person I was putting on to validate myself for people to be like, oh, Jess looks fun. But all I was doing was drinking all the time. And I, I, I was realizing the more the internet grew, the more I'm kind of encouraging people that aren't aren't doing well in their minds and in their mental health to go out and drink like I was because that's fun. And look how much fun I'm having. But I wasn't. The reason I was doing that was because I was so deeply depressed. But you put on this front and this show and actually that will end up destroying you. What, what was it like on that X on the Beach then? So this was the first TV program that propelled you into the spotlight. You were playing a particular role that you wasn't within yourself happy with because you were portraying an image that wasn't really Jess, the Jess that had gone through this domestic, you, you know, the loss of her nephew, you, you, you know, caring for your mother. And so all of a sudden you're, you're, you're kind of freed up in this program to be someone that you're not. So you can hide all that that trauma, which still... I suspect at this stage needs dealing with. But what did you learn from that program? Because I've read some of your comments and heard some of your comments, but you've been quite critical of of the production of these shows, which is educating people about what it's about. So just share a little bit about that with me. Yeah, I mean, just so X on the Beach, obviously the concept's going to be confrontational anyway, let's be honest. Um, what I'd learned from doing that was, I mean, to put on a on a front – I was being this happy comic. I was just comedy, like laughing around, joking around. I was just doing that to cover up something else that was I wasn't dealing with. I think when I've spoken about reality TV before, I think producers need to have a lot more responsibility. I think rate and humanity. I think ratings should not come before seeing someone in a really bad way that should be stopped. I, I don't think it should be able to air when you know as a human being, if you put this out of an 18-year-old having sex on TV or just going absolutely crazy on TV, that's going to really destroy them. And we all signed something at the beginning saying, you know, we are aware, we understand. But what 18-year-old is going to say, oh, I don't want to do it actually because that's too worrying, when you're being said, you know, selling the dream's being sold to you. Like, this is going to be the best TV show. You're going to get this. You're going to do this. And you just think, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. But actually, you know, at 18, 
Christ, I look back at 18. I, I would not trust myself with anything that I had to sign now. I'd be like, everything is void. <laughs> Previous to 25, void everything. You know, so it, there just needs to be a higher level of care. And I have seen that happen with Love Island. I have seen them, you know, it's been in the press and on the telly that the, the level of care is being upped. Um, I think that's super important, especially after the amount of suicides that I've seen from these shows, people you know, it, it affects you in such a way. You you go from your normal kind of life propelled into to millions of people online and you do one thing wrong and you can get trolled for the next 10 years. And is that really acceptable? It's, it's quite a scary time, this for me, where, you know, kids are saying, oh, what do you aspire to be? Oh, Love Island. It worries me because we are in this time of people have to have an opinion and they want to have hate and they want to go online and, and make someone know that they don't like them. But that's, to me, it's just breeding a load more of unhealed people because I know when someone is happy within themselves, they're not going to go online and tweet someone to tell them how disgusting they are, but it, it's happening so much. And you've also got headlines that come about from the, the scenarios on these shows. These headlines are clickbait to have people trolling. The reason why a headline will be as it is, it's because it's perfect for responses from the public because they're going to get trolled for it. And it's just a vicious circle. So for me, reality TV now, I look at it and I feel unless you are certain of who you are and and you're comfortable and happy with who you are, I don't think it's a safe place to go for anyone. You mentioned it a few times. So I'm going to ask, was you filmed having sex on TV? And secondly, were you told by the productions how to behave? I mean, you said you was wild anyway and that you were kind of hiding the real traumas that you'd experienced in your life. But were you also, was it was, was the show not quite as reality as they make it out to be because they were, and when I say they, the productions, were dictating how you should and shouldn't behave, what you should and shouldn't do in order to get these ratings? Yeah, it, it was kind of constructed. So I call it constructed reality because... I did have sex on TV. You don't, luckily, it, I was under the covers. You don't see anything. But regardless, you still know it happened. And I didn't, I was really upset about that. I remember waking up the next day. I was so drunk. I still woke up drunk and I was mortified. And I didn't know what to do. But I thought, well, just drink more. Because because this is, this is it now. It's on TV. You can't do anything about it. Well, wouldn't that be... I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are, but, you know, wouldn't that be classed as, as rape if you were vulnerable and drunk? I mean, I agree. I agree to it. But, we, you know, we, in my head, we're just drunk idiots, both of us and with my ex-boyfriend, so, you know. Uh, right. So it was more about being on filming it on the TV. Did they show it to the audience? Yeah, it was shown from it was in the middle of the night and they have set up cameras all around the villa. Um, so you as I say, it wasn't like they'd come in with their camera like they do in the daytime and film it because that would not have happened then. But you just kind of get caught in this. Forget the cameras were there. Yeah, especially when you're you're 22 and absolutely steaming drunk on Jaeger bombs from that you've been doing all night and that these things happen. But I do remember the next day I was absolutely devastated I'd done it because I just really thought I'd let myself down. And I think that's the feeling most people that have had that happen on these shows feels the next day, ones that I've spoken to. So it's not it's not like some people think that's another way of you capturing the headlines over and above all the other competitors, if if you like. You know, having the sex on TV is going to get the headlines as opposed to you get drunk, fall asleep on the on on the bed. No, what you're saying is that it was devastating for them to to broadcast this. And I read and let's be clear about this. I read and heard that you begged the production team not to play it out but they still went ahead and played it they've got my signature they can they can put whatever they want out there's nothing I can do about it at that point but I was devastated and I, I mean don't get me wrong there's probably some people that would like to do it for the headlines and they'd be like yay cool but for me it was I did not want I had no intention of doing that I did not want to do that I just messed up and and that was that and it that haunted me for a long time until I could could accept it and once I accepted it I, I managed to help myself move on from it but um I feel like you have to have a strong character in yourself and who you are to go on there thinking oh, I'll do this for headlines because that was awful and I actually went back on season five of X on the Beach which was the all-star version and on there I walked off the show because by this point I I think I was 25 and I was the things I was hearing from production, I spoke about this. One of the production um, managers came on and said, okay, I was, I think it was my second night in Thailand in this villa. 
And they said, oh, lots of shagging tonight, please, girls. And I was like, you know what? I'm out. So I pretended I had tonsillitis, even though I had my t- no tonsils in my in my throat, um, <laughs> to get out the villa for a while until I decided. And then I, I said, listen, I need to get out. They, they made me stay another day just to make sure I was making the right decision. And then I was out. And that was that was it. That was my reality TV done in that respect. But the reason why I did Celebrity Big Brother Year of the Woman was because by this point, I'd, I, I'd grown up. I'd started to – I felt I'd ruined – everything after the x on the beach i really honestly thought all you're going to be now is someone that's you're not going to get better to get a normal job I, I really just ripped my wrote myself off i i just thought there was nothing left of me people had this opinion and and i could never change that and i believed it of myself as well and what was that opinion that you believe people had of you i just wasn't good enough i was a, i honestly thought they thought i was a tramp they thought i was um just just one of these girls that no one would ever want to be with I just had such low opinion of myself I I thought I was such low grade of a human I I can't really explain it I just felt I was never good enough to make a difference in my life I thought that's what you are now that's your fault you've done it I saw where I went wrong from the beginning with the glam modeling I saw it spiral from there and I said I just said there's no way up from here and actually it was hard I remember when Celebrity Big Brother came along and they said it was Year of the Woman, I thought this is a chance just to show who I really am and I'm going to be honest now rather than putting on this front of being this loud, crazy, drunk girl. Just go on there and be yourself and maybe you'll give yourself a chance at something else. And I did and I had a great time on there. I was with very influential women, people that were politicians, people that were actresses and that kind of saved me that show in a way because that's not constructed that's very much you get dumped in the house and and that's that and I was with Anne Widdicombe, Amanda Barry, Ashley James and women that kind of knew themselves and to be around that was a change for me because I was like oh okay well this woman's telling me she made this mistake once but she's she's telling me to go for it so she must think something of me. And I got, I, I developed a really good relationship with Anne Widdicombe and no one thought I would because of the glam modeling past and the craziness on TV and Anne being so conservative and religious. They, they thought we would clash, but we became really good friends and she taught me so much. And I think at that point I had learned that I can now reach out to these people and learn something and how I change is from what I can learn now. And it, and it opened up my mind. I remember Amanda Barry from Coronation Street and she'd, you know, carry on Cleo and she's had this amazing career and she was 82 and she sat, sat me down and said, if you want to act, you just go and do it. And after that, I, I learned something and it was, if I don't believe in who I am and what I want to do, how the hell am I going to get anyone else to believe it? So I, I took, took a step away from the limelight. I, I stepped away. Um, my, I got divorced. I hit real rock bottom in divorce. That was just after Big Brother that I got divorced. And I tried to commit suicide because all of them feelings came shooting back in a form that I didn't even know. It was like everything that had ever gone on just came at me all at once. And I was in a hostel in Australia where we were visiting my ex-husband's family. And I just had enough. I took all my sleeping tablets and some anti-anxiety tablets, a lot of them. And somehow I woke up the next morning. But I, I remember... I was annoyed that I'd woken up, but I was like, okay, you've woken up. This is not your time. And I just remember thinking, I don't want to live like this anymore. So you've got two choices. You either just take them all again and that's the end of your life or you change it now. And the only person that can do that is you. And when I got that mindset, I think I hit hit the biggest of rock bottoms I could ever have hit that point in that hostel. And that's when I came up. And so now I don't look at rock bottom as a bad place. I look at it as a place of change. And I needed to hit that rock bottom and just thank whatever is out there. That I, I truly believe there's something bigger than us. Whatever was out there looking after me made me wake up that next day. And from that day, my life changed around. I would not allow bad thoughts. I started meditating. I started reading religiously. I read and read and read. I read about neuroscience. I read about why my brain behaves the way it does. I read about childhood traumas. I read about the power of the mind. I I read and read and read. And that has been my godsend. And it was almost like my therapy. And that's when I thought, okay, now maybe why don't you write a book to, to do your experiences of how you coped with these traumas? And maybe you can help other people like these books have helped you. So I, I wrote a book. I took myself away. I went to LA. I did a movie. I got a movie. Like it, the minute my mind changed, 
the minute my world changed. And I can hear that in your voice and see it in your reactions, actually. We'll come on to your book, but you dropped a little bombshell in there in that you got divorced. I didn't even know that you got married because we didn't talk about the the the, the marriage and, and that was, and the suicide. Thanks for sharing that. Um, but also, more importantly, the, 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 the testimony that it was when you was at your worst, you became your strongest. And I think that's such an important message because at that place, there is no other direction. And as you rightly said, Jess, you, you know, you finish it, which is the wrong thing for anybody to be thinking but you know people's minds and people do find themselves in those places but you decided to go down the other journey and that's where your voice picked up that's where your your testimony about who you are today as opposed to who you wanted to be who you wanted people to believe you to be that's what I got out of the passion of you sharing what you just shared I was going to ask you actually about your relationships with men or women, I don't know your preference, but I was going to ask you about your relationships, given the work that you, you've you done, because no doubt there will be men drawling over you because of who you are and what you've done and, and, and your appearance. And then there will be men who want you because of your, your celebrity status. What was relationships like for you with men? Because initially you said to me, you know, a lot of your relationships born out of your, your childhood were, were toxic. But you knew that, you recognised that. So I suspect that as you got older, you were looking for something more than just a guy who kind of replicated that sadness in your life. So just tell me a little bit about your relationships, if you want. Yeah, like now I'm single. I I know that I still have a, a issue around there that I need to work on. The, the the side of myself that I healed was the depression, the, the not believing in myself, because now I wholeheartedly do and I know I can do anything. That was healed but what I've now come to realize is is that my relationships still need a bit of work on and that's something I will continue to work on and I'm I would I won't go for someone that gives me fear anymore that replicates the childhood fear I've understood that but I need to keep working on the idea of codependency I suppose always hoping someone is there just in case I need someone or you know, just in case I need protection or a protective sort of guy. My my marriage was was great. We had a laugh. And I think the thing was with that, he actually did a podcast recently saying that he thinks he fell, he, we got married because he enjoyed the celebrity idea of it at the time. And he was excited about being in the papers. And, you know, kudos to him for being honest and open about it um, and why, why we went so wrong and we can talk openly about it. Um, he actually played rugby and he ended up getting on the England rugby team, went to South Africa and he cheated on me out there. The girl found me on Instagram, messaged me, blah, 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 divorce next minute. <laughs> um, that I, uh, It's a hard one because, I, I, as I say, I'm, it's still something I need to work on and I need to, to overcome. But I think the more work you do on yourself as a person, these things come along. I know now that I wouldn't be as open and honest at the beginning you've got to hold some of yourself you've always got to hold yourself no one can come and save you no one can come and fix everything the only person that can do that is yourself and I think obviously we do have loving and kind relationships around us and we we shouldn't just focus on a significant other or a partner to fulfill that I've realized now that I have friends I have family that can fulfill this need of connection that all humans have we all have a need for connection but I don't need to jump into something within a week and be like oh my gosh we get married again and life is daisies and rainbows it it doesn't work like that because you've still got to know each other so you can fulfill yourself with your your loving relationships that you've had all your life but you can still leave room open for your significant other to come in but you don't need to just chuck yourself in and then and then that be it you know you, you need to I think it's a, a thing where it has to grow like all these other relationships with your friends and your family it grows it develops as you grow up and I think my my problem was I think I just jumped into things because it felt right at the time um, and I think I had this Disney Disney approach of like oh I'm Cinderella and there's Prince Charming whereas you know, it doesn't work like that. I think Disney done us dirty. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned that that at, at one point when you were in the the celebrity uh, Big Brother uh, house, and and some of the words of wisdom from some of the older women, if you like, who said, "Just just go for it." You did, and you said you went to LA and you were able to get a part in a in a movie. How is the acting career going? What direction did that 
that tape because that is where we started this conversation. You know, as a little girl, you dreamed of of the limelight in in the right way. I say not that anything you've done is the wrong way, but I mean, in your dream then was to get to drama school and then go on to do what you've done, and you've done that to to some extent, maybe in a different sphere to to a movie or a drama or something. But how is that going? really well actually so like I said if you believe something you'll get it and I had to it wasn't I stepped away from the whole public eye thing as much as I could because now when I see things like I broke up with someone recently it was in the sun and it, it, it I get really nervous when it comes out like I, I, I freak out because it takes me back in my mind to to all of that stuff so I, I feel like now I like being stepped away I like being away from it. I, I grew a business with three other people. One thing from Celebrity Big Brother as well is Anne Widdicombe said, stop putting yourself down because you're not a stupid girl. And I always played that. Oh, don't worry, I'm just stupid. That's why I did it. Because it was an excuse I could use. Oh, I'm just stupid. I'm stupid. And we, we talk, tell, tell ourselves that enough, you become stupid. But when Anne Widdicombe sat me down, I was like, you're actually very intelligent. So you need to remember that. And I was like, okay, do a bit of work on that, figure out where my intelligence lies. And I built a company and... I went back to adult acting school and I was just making sure that I I was doing what I could to change it. And I took a step away, like I said, because I had to believe in me again. I, I couldn't get the validation from anywhere else. So I stopped trying to get the validation from outside sources and I started getting the validation from my inside source. And that's when I believed in myself enough to make others believe in it. So I, I ended up with a, I got my acting agent if I believed in myself, as I say, someone else is going to, so the agent did. Of course. And um, he believed in me. I got a part on a small independent film with Dean Kane, who used to play Superman. Um, it was a, you know, it was a little film. It's on Amazon Prime. It wasn't that great. But, um, you know, it was great to get back in, which then led to a part in LA for a film called Rhea, which is now called Override, because it's only out in America at the moment. And I played the lead role uh, alongside Luke Goss, and also one of the pussycat dolls, Kimberly Wyatt. And okay. I was—I remember having such imposter syndrome, thinking my old belief would come back and I'd think, oh, God, they're not going to want to work with me because I've done all this in the papers and I, I'm not good enough for this. And I just sat myself down with my Anne Widdicombe in one ear and Amanda Barry in the other, like, you can change your world at any time. You've got this. So I just went for it. And that went really well. And I've just booked a film that we was supposed to film in May, but it's now in July with um, Jason Fleming. And it's a zombie comedy. And I, I, I figured out a bit more of what I like to do. And I love doing comedy. And I always have so much fun doing comedy and doing these skits and skets. And I almost feel like that 13-year-old again. It's like that all this stuff in the middle has just been pushed down. And I've just gone back to where I started. So in my head, I'm 13 again, living my dreams. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so exciting to hear you say that, actually. And but you talk about, I mean, I've met Anne Whittacombe, so I know exactly what she's like. I, I met her inside a prison, actually. And, and, you know, I know a lot of people think she's a particular type of person, but I know she's completely different. And, and I admire her. And she was very helpful to me as, as well in a completely different capacity. So, so I can champion Anne with you. Good luck with your acting career. I'm sure it will just grow and grow and grow. And then you've written a book, haven't you? You've written a book about your life. I mean, even though you're young enough to write your second and third and fourth, you know, there's still another 10 years, you know, when you're picking up your BAFTAs or Oscars or whatever it is in the future. And you never say never. Because I listen I'm getting to, a BAFTA. Well, you, do you know what? what the one thing I, I'm getting from, from you is, is when you talk about, you worry about whether people think you know, your past makes you not good enough. But it's about embracing your past, isn't it? It's about saying, well, that's who I was. And I did that for that reason. And that's a good reason. It was good enough for me. It's good enough for anyone else. And if you don't like it, F you, you know, kind of, that's the kind of attitude that you've got to adopt, isn't it? In order to to move forward. It's not about resilience. It's about sort of saying, hold on a minute, if you were in my situation, what would you do? It's not even asking them to to accept. It's about saying, these are the stepping stones in my life to make the jest that I am today. And boy, have you been through some some trauma and you've witnessed stuff, you've attempted suicide, you know, you've you've had a, a public divorce and lots of things, and yet you're still standing at 32 and you're still moving forward. Um, and you're bringing, you have a huge responsibility on your shoulder as well, because a lot of people know who you are. A lot of young women and men look up to you, um, people that you don't even know because they follow your every word and are, are inspired by your image or by your words or by your thoughts. 
So what was the book about? What did you write your book about? And why did you write the book? It was something that I thought about for a long time. And I knew I had a story. But when I first thought about it, it was just after X on the beach and I was completely off the rails still. So it, did, it doesn't make no sense for me to do something like that. Um, and I trust the timing of whatever's looking out for us. I'm quite spiritual. I believe there's something, a higher power that will guide us when we ask for help. And I feel like after the suicide attempt and after a year of trying to fix myself, I thought it was time because at that point it wasn't a worries me story. It was a story of hope. And I feel like when I can write all these chapters down, and pull out the silver lining so that other people going through any of these things can look for that and hold on to that silver lining, they can get through it too. I feel like when when you're drained of hope as a human, that's when things get bad. And my idea for silver lining is to talk about, you know, each trauma and go into depth of it, but to tell you what I learned from that. And, you know, like I said, there's there can be, there is a lesson in everything or there's a silver lining in everything. But both of those things are a positive because no matter how bad something is, you can still pull something. A lesson is still a good thing because we've learned not to do that again. And whether it be a public humiliation, like I've probably done to myself millions of times, I've still learned from that. I've still learned to grow from that. I still learned that I won't want to do that again because it didn't make me feel good. I've learned to understand my feelings through finding that. And if we can hold on to a hope when we're in our darkest hour, that one bit of hope can be the thing that changed your entire life around. And that was what I wanted to write down. I wanted any 17, 16 year old girl or younger or, or, or man or anyone that is just in despair to know that even at the darkest of times, there is always something you can hold on to. Inspirational. It, it really is actually to hear you say that because there will be lots of people who are in search of, of that silver lining. That's the name of your book. How can people get hold of your book? So it's, on Amazon, it's in Waterstones, WH Smiths, all the bookstores really, um, or online. So yeah, it's Silver Linings. Just my uh, thanks for sharing that last bit because I think I'd love to end it there, but I do have to ask you one more question, and that is about your relationship with the media because you you have been in the spotlight since you were twenty two years old, or, or even before that when you were on page three and doing that stuff. What's your relationship like with, with the media? Because you know. Um, we need it to, to some extent to, to, to sell our books and let people know that our books are available or the work that you're doing. You want them to write good reviews about your movie. So we do need the media, um, a, a responsible media to, to some extent, just to, to, to report the truth, if, if you like, or tell honest stories and not, as you talked about at the beginning, setting up people to troll you or clickbait and all that. So what's your relationship like with the media at the moment? I think now because I live authentically, nothing can hurt me. Like they may have reported, you know, I've had a breakup, but that's the honest truth. Okay, cool. I've got nothing to hide anymore. And I think no one can use anything against you if you don't have anything to hide. Like I'm happy with who I am. I'm at peace with my mistakes. And I and I love who I am for the first time in like my life that now if if something's out there, it can't hurt me because I've accepted it and I understand it and I've forgiven myself for it. And if you forgive yourself for something, no one can use anything against you. Brilliant. What what does the future hold? I know you talked about having this. This so you got the book books out there. I'm telling you, you should start a podcast. You should get onto someone. You you've got this movie that you'll be shooting in July, and I suppose that's where your focus is. But where does Jess want to be? The most difficult question of all the conversation we've had. But where does Jess want to be in five, maybe ten years time? Or are you just living your life like you said from that lesson you learned? Oh, a bit of both. I I've I've started a company within it's called the house of influence which is and we've also launched a thing called the good influence project which is where we're trying to change the way social media is um so that you know you can't have people advertising something that's going to injure or harm or hurt other people where you you, you get yourself a rating and I, I feel that might change the the course of how social media and trolling becomes we've been building that I write I write as well for the articles for that and that's great that's one side of it the acting's never going to stop I've had auditions for a tv pilot and I've got that so if that gets picked up I'm going to continue with that and the, I want to write another book I'm halfway through writing one about the tools I've used to heal rather than my memoir this is a tools book that I use every day 
with the science behind the brain that I've done research into and and stuff like that. And I just want to keep living happy. I don't really care what any of those things gives me in a monetary value or a materialistic value. What those things do give me is a sense of pride in myself and what I've achieved. And that gives me a happiness. And it's not from the, the external things from that. It's from the internal that that gives me. And I want to just continue doing that and live a happy life. Jess, thanks so much for sharing your story and giving your time over for me this afternoon. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I've really loved it. Jessica is a real genuine and I found honest person. It's hard to find the silver linings in most awful situations, but as Jess has demonstrated, it is so empowering to do so. You can read more about Jess, her life and how she overcome her troubles in her book, Silver Linings. I highly recommend it. Go and get it. I'm not here to plug people's books, but you know, she really does have an ordinary but powerful story to tell that I'm sure many of you will resonate with. Also, make sure to head over to www.wearehoy.com and soak in some of those positive influences. You know, reality star, thoughtful thinker. I liked how Jess told her story and I think she has a powerful story to tell and I hope she keeps on telling it. Ordinary young woman who's made a success based on her choices and and I love the honesty where she admits that she made mistakes, didn't like doing certain things but that's not held her back and I think it's a testimony and inspiration and should be to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share and follow us on social media. It'd be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. And if you want to support or advertise on this show, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by j Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.